0: This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Speer and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and, .org, and on Facebook and Instagram at chefswithoutrestaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 20 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. On this week's episode, we have Chef Dan Doyle. Dan is currently a regional chef with Legends Hospitality and works with Live Nation. In this episode, we discuss the contract food business, high-volume cooking, the pricing of stadium food, culinary school and the American Culinary Federation, unions in kitchens, and so much more. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Jug Bridge Brewery, located at 911. East Patrick Street in Frederick, Maryland. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Hey, everybody. Thanks
1: for coming back. This is Chefs Without Restaurant Podcast. I'm Andrew.
0: I'm Mr. Chris. And
1: today we have with us Chef Dan Doyle. Thanks for coming out, man. Yeah, hey, no problem. Appreciate you taking the trip. Yeah, happy to be here. Cool. So Dan has been anywhere from... I, by the way, I got this from Jared. He's been everything between a caterer, a head chef at Aramark. He's been at M&T Stadium. Working with the Ravens and now working with Live Nation as a regional chef. That's right. Correct? Yeah. So where, I guess, does it make sense to start telling your story as it pertains to food?
2: Oh, man. Quite an interesting one. At least least I think so. Uh, so you guys obviously know Jared, uh, both from Middletown, Maryland, uh, here in Frederick County. By chance, I happened to get a job uh, at Leda Lauder & Sons, which was a small gas station food store.
1: Great cheesesteak.
2: Great cheesesteaks, right? Um, so that was uh, when I was 15 years old, and um, I hate to admit it, but anyone from the listening now. I completely lied when I applied. I had no idea of cooking <laughs> whatsoever. I just wanted a job. that was close to my house that I could walk to. Did that for a couple years uh, through high school. Tried to go into uh, finance and um, some other things through Hagerstown Community College and FCC. Uh, was expelled um, from Hagerstown Community College for not going to class because I absolutely hated uh, that kind of work or that, that schooling. But uh, I loved going to work as a cook, so I figured that would be my, my dream. And um, took a culinary program at FCC, Chef Bob Webb. Worked, uh, did program with him. Worked for him for about a year or two. I met um, some other friends in the industry, as we all kind of know. Got a job uh, working at Canapes Catering here in Frederick. Oh, cool! Down on Market Street, back in the old days. There, uh, did that for a few years, and decided that I wanted to go back to school to get my bachelor's degree. That took me to Baltimore International College in Baltimore. I was there for my associates and my bachelors. While there, I decided I'd get like you know a kind of a part-time job that I could. Blow off whenever I wanted to and understanding all of that. And uh, got a part time summer gig at uh, Orioles Stadium. That uh, transitioned to uh, 13 years with Aramark, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, it was a great run. <laughs> um, worked for the Orioles there for a couple of years. Uh, then I went to uh, Verizon Center, now Cap 1 Arena in DC. I was there for three years. Went to Pittsburgh, worked with the Steelers for three seasons. Got the call to come back to Baltimore and uh, came back to uh, Raven Stadium. Was the exec sous for about a year, then became the exec chef for the last three years, and um, after that, uh, saw an opportunity to grow. and Legends uh, got me gave me a call to be the regional chef for them. And
1: basically, your whole career has been food related, kind of.
2: I've kind of always been, um, I think, at first looking outward, and I think a lot of that was pressure from my family to say, "Hey, maybe you know culinary career is not the in the way to go." You know, mm-hmm. you realize it's rough and. This was uh, kind of the early stages of the, the food network boom, as I call it, where people were still not necessarily thinking of the profession as more of just a, a service industry profession. As it has evolved to this day much more so, I think. Luckily for me, that kind of progressed at the same time that I was able to take a lead on it, too. So, yeah, uh, I've been with it for a while now, and I don't see any plans to leave it, at least.
1: You're working with Live Nation, but what's the company again? Legends? Legends. Legends
2: Hospitality. So
1: yeah. what kind of things do they have you doing as far as like being the executive chef?
2: Yeah. So um, I have about 11 properties that I directly oversee, and I support anyone else that kind of has a problem in the, in the United States. Um, we have uh, 41 accounts of the big boys. Live Nation has uh, quite a few more uh, cookie jars. They have their hands-ins, though, of course. I travel around. I help uh, train staff, hire staff, um, recipe imp- implementation. Uh, I do food safety audits. Uh, right now in the off season for us, because uh, concert season doesn't really start for us till April. Um, we're doing recipe development. We're working with partners and sponsorships to identify products um, to see you know new initiatives. Get those things rolled out. I think the biggest challenge for us is logistics of supply chain where. You know, we may have a great idea and we want to use this new fabulous you know, quail egg, but we can't get quail eggs at every state in the United States and for you know hundreds of thousands of people at the same time. So those kinds of things that uh, I'm working on right now, for sure.
1: Actually, that's interesting to me about the quail egg because I was going to ask you, being that it's like stadiums and, and concert venues, is that the kind of thing that's included on the menus there ever?
2: Uh, we're seeing a big, um, I think, change in – the perception of food, yeah, and I think that's kind of been a really unique thing for the industry is that you now see gas stations and hospitals with Yelp reviews, and you're starting to see that the industry and there's a higher expectation for better food at every location you attend mm-hmm. as opposed to just a restaurant or or food facility so you know um, the the thing that I noticed a lot in the stadiums and stuff uh, was. There used to be an old switch. You know, it's like, you know, they come for the football or they come for the baseball and then the food is just there. But now a lot of people are just attending games to have the food experience. And uh, Hmm. I think that, you know, you'll see that in a lot of uh, places coming up is that they're making it more of a destination to be a higher experience that food is a big part of now. Uh, You know, you look at like Royal Farms, they're getting rated by Food and Wine magazine for their fried chicken.
1: Oh, yeah, they got Best in Frederick. Right. And, (laughs) you
2: know, those things like that. And, you know, the uh, the culture of that, I think uh, a lot of people have more expectations of what food is now. So, you know, celebrity partnerships and, you know, exotic ingredients and having that experience.
0: So then are there any hot food trends right now? I mean, I'm sure there are, but uh, anything exciting for you that you're looking at? as the season starts to get going? I think for
2: us right now, I think the the biggest trend that everyone seems to be kind of like jumping on is the, um, uh, vegetable based meat products, you know, the impossible meats, the beyond meats, those things like that, meat substitutes. Um, and for whatever reason, for, for a health conscious reason, for a sustainability reason, for, you know, animal cruelty reasons. I mean, I think those are Probably the biggest thing going on for us right now in terms of like you know the industry and you know whether you're for it or against it. I mean I'm still a carnivore at heart and I will always be probably, but um, you can understand it where it's coming from a little bit too.
0: I just think they're so gross. Like now, now <laughs> I, I want to clarify because I used to be a vegetarian. Like I am very pro veggie burger, but I think those two products that are. Water, soy protein, and then coconut oil and vegetable oil. Like it's not meat, but is it healthy? You know, and right, and that's a whole different oh, yeah, thing. Yeah. But just I, I find it so bizarre because I don't even think they taste good. I had a Beyond Burger, and I was like belching this. Um, it tasted like liquid smoke all afternoon. Just this very artificial kind of coming back on me. It's like I would rather just have like a plant based burger that's like a kale quinoa with. You know, peppers and onions in it, or something oh, like. The, sure. Go. Yeah. I would rather yeah. see the return of like the black bean burger yeah. um, that you get from Morningstar Star right. than like these weird fake meat things. Th-
2: there's some questionability mm. of it. You know, you know that a black bean burger. They're they're farming black beans. <laughs> they're processing those down. Of course, you know, uh, some of these new meats are being you know made in laboratories and. Uh, the process just seems so
0: extreme to me that I would much rather have like a grilled portobello cap than right. deal with all this stuff. And and the, and the pricing at like twelve dollars a pound or something for that stuff—it's insane. It's it's
2: insane, and you know I think that kind of like the same stigma you have with like uh, with like recycling. You know, like everyone's pro recycling, but they don't understand like the processes of how much pollutions are, like, made from recycling process and the trucks need to come pick up the uh, the, bottles. you got to clean the jars or else they're not going to use them. And And it's, like, a whole big thing. The same thing, I think, goes with this, um, you know, all these kind of products where, you know, we're we're saving a lot of cows and maybe there's less methane production. You know, I don't know if we can see the trend in those numbers yet. I think it's probably early in in the development of all these meats. But um, there's got to be something else going on there. It seems like a lot of extra stuff. But, I mean, people like it, so... I can appreciate it's it. On, it's on extent. trend
0: right now, but you it's know, so like trendy. last week, I made a tempeh cheesesteak, and I thought it was amazing. I would rather have one of sure. those, just like you know, taking some tempeh and brown it up with some caramelized onions and peppers, and throw some cheese on there and put it on a roll. Like to me, I'd rather have that than like a Beyond steak meat right. in a, a cheesesteak. steak. Um, another question was like, I don't know how much you can talk about pricing, but it just seems like the food prices at stadiums and arenas is so high. Is there a reason for that? Because, I mean, you'd assume that their operation cost, while high, is not necessarily higher than some other venues or some other places that are kind of, you know, a high-end hotel or a restaurant or something. It just seems like it's hard to go. You want to go sure. and have this exciting oh, yeah. food, but then it's like $30 for a burger or something. And you're <laughs> like, what is going on? I think, I think that this is always a challenge for us.
2: And um, I guess, like, you know, the uh, for us... Uh, with the bigger companies, you know, you call them like the WalMarts of like food companies. They have the buying power to be, you know, buying this stuff. And a lot of these bigger companies have, uh, they buy like futures with like you know Tyson or Purdue. That, you know, they'll have guaranteed chicken pricing for the next three or four years out, which is like unheard of in the restaurant industry. So they have early pricing structures in. They know you know the models, and you know a lot of time is spent studying what what that could be. I have a simple and a complicated answer. Simple answer: I think that. Um, as long as sales will continue to rise, they're going to keep charging whatever they can. Whatever the market will bear. Whatever the market will bear, they'll they'll keep charging for it. But on the other end of it, you know, um, as an operator, of those kind of industries before, you know, you walk in the door and you know that your your food cost is going to be fifty cents a burger or whatever. Um, but you're being told by the building owner, you know, the management company that owns the building itself, the sponsorship agreement that you have with someone else, the corporate entity that you're also reporting to that you got to pay each one of them 20 percent on top of you know paying like salaries for your staff and stuff that's where the money kind of usually ends up going it's just because there's so many people operating in this opera in this arena or stadium that it just happens to be they keep building the prices up
0: yeah i mean you know like in my opinion everyone's using the same chicken tenders and you can go to like a place in town it's like 5.99 and like you go to a family like a place and it's maybe like 8.99 then you go to the stadium it's like 15.99 and it's like where does the price like right, how do you right. how do you get up there I was really impressed this summer I went to a Pirates baseball game in Pittsburgh and they have a Permanti Brothers like in the stadium mm-hmm. and I don't even think they inflated the prices from like their restaurant downtown i kind of like that so you're going around and you're seeing these big you know kind of chain run food stalls where you're paying a lot of money for this and then you have this restaurant that's kind of well known in town and they're charging like literally the same price that you would pay if you went to their actual restaurant outside of the stadium uh and i felt you know that was good to see i was excited
2: some of those they they recognize when the restaurant or you know celebrity chef comes in that they are Going to operate at break even or loss just because they want to get the advertising or the marketing involved with that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to bring up.
2: Right. So they they know that they're going to be losing money on the deal or at least breaking even, and a lot of times those guys are still paying a commission back to the, you know the head concessionaire whether it's a an Aramark or a Levy or a Sodexo, whoever it is. So there's that, but um, a lot of times they just dictate. that so we're not going to we're going to gouge people. Uh, you know, if it's a fifteen dollars sandwich. At a restaurant, you know, in the Strip District, it's going to be fifteen bucks. Also, in in the stadium, which, which is nice. I get it, but you know, it's just um, it's tough to manage that for for sure.
1: Do you work with any partnerships like that in your region?
2: Um, we have a couple of national partners that some are new, some are old. I think we had a uh, probably can't speak to a whole lot of that, but um, uh, we had a lot of success with uh, Danny Trejo's Restaurant Group um, with his Trejo's Tacos program. Uh, last year, and that's expanding this year a little bit, too. Um, it's his street tacos that his family has kind of created, of this restaurant in California. and I don't know how many locations he has of the actual restaurant, but that's expanding quite a bit. I think he actually just signed a deal with with uh, Dodger Stadium as well, with Levy. We helped get um, Tim Love out of Texas uh, with his barbecue brand a couple locations this year, uh, which is very well, which was really great. Um, Doghouse. Uh, hot dogs, uh, we use quite a bit too. they about 20 locations in the United States. Yeah.
1: When you do those partnerships, is it kind of like, does it fall under the, the legends? Like, like, are you overseeing everything and they just have their recipes kind of in there or is it like they are operating separately from what you do?
2: Most of the time, uh, it depends on how much they want to be involved. So yeah. in a situation like, you know, um, with like dog house or with Tim love, Uh, we would send people to their um, restaurants. So we sent a couple guys to Texas to work with Tim Love and his team that then came back and kind of like cross-trained the the staff at those locations. Um, Doghouse was able to send people out to some of our venues to train on site, which was also really great. Some of these guys, you know, and no one currently, but I've had partners in the past with different companies, and you just get like a recipe book, and you never even hear from them ever again. And you know, and they get a check in the mail, and that's about it. You know, you get a couple branded t shirts and hats that the staff wears, and we write a big check to them back, and that's it. You know, but a lot of those are like nationally driven, unfortunately, so there's not a whole lot of involvement. But I personally haven't met Danny Trejo, but I'm sure that he's met with a couple of people above my pay grade, you know.
1: Yeah, that seems like the better end of the deal <laughs> getting the check rather than like working and, and paying the there stadium was, <laughs> a whole bunch of money
2: <laughs> there was a guy a couple of years ago and I won't say where I won't say I won't use his name um, but uh, he developed a concept for us I think it was you know six figure deal and he literally it was one recipe and he got a commission structure on sales and a six figure upfront check and never set foot in a venue never cooked a thing just threw his name on a sticker and put it on the menu board and that was it and I was like that's the that's the dream right there because I mean yeah, you know, that one deal made more money for him. You know, probably sent him for my you know his iPhone in his car and like you know, like you
1: know, is he? He's like a celebrity chef kind of person.
2: Uh, he's not as big as he used to be. Um, he's out there, yeah, but he's not as big as he used to be. He's but he's of, got a
1: name, basically. He's That's got what, a name,
2: yeah. you know. And at the time, and uh, it, it made it work. But you know, some of these guys. Uh, you know, um, we get a lot of feedback from people that are looking for like better food. Like I had said before, you know, they're looking, they have higher higher expectations of what the food is. And you know, we're happy to facilitate that and to make it like, you know, have a great thing for them
0: and being able to have these partnerships. So how much does that drive sales? I'm sure. I mean, someone knows that when you work with a chef like that, who brings a name, like, do you feel that it's worth it? If you can make that work, do people really come out and say, Oh chef, so-and-so has a dish at this, you know, stadium,
2: I, I, I like it too. like, you know, sometimes, um, you know, the Chevy dealership always has a Corvette parked out front. You know, they want to get people in, you know, but they sell more Malibus and Impalas than do Corvettes. And uh, I think that they're, um, it helps with the perception of what the food service is. I think that um, there's that there that elevates the experience for people that do care about that. But they'll never be able to beat chicken tenders and french fries. They'll never be able to beat hot dogs. You know, those are the the, the the brass tacks of that industry. I enjoy it as a chef. I enjoy wow. eating the food. And I think that we get a lot of positive feedback from that. It's never going to take over, I don't think. Um, you know, you're never going to have a stadium that's entirely, you know, Jose Andres concept, for example. You know, and I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's dabbling in that now, I believe. Uh, but um, it's a very tough structure to follow. So having a good mix, you know, having a good... They can come in if you want to want to do that and wait in the line for that. You can, and if not, go somewhere else.
0: So do you guys have to do catering like for high end boxes, VIPs, that kind of stuff? Is there? Do you guys run a catering program for that? How, do you know how that works? Yeah. So um, when
2: I was the uh, chef for the Ravens, um, we called ourselves a catering team with a football problem. That basically was what it was. And so ten times a year, I had to deal with the Ravens coming in and and you know messing up my stadium. Um, but the other, you know, 355 days a year, uh, we were doing catering with bar mitzvahs, proms, corporate events, box lunches, I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. Um, Outside of the stadium? In, in, in the stadium itself. So, oh, okay. you know, I mean, uh, uh, Steelers, we did a lot more. Uh, weddings, because people loved having wedding photos at the Steelers Stadium. That's more of a, a call up there, I think. But, um, you know, a lot of proms. And, and the thing was, I think, you know, in Baltimore especially, no one ever wanted to hear this no matter how good my food was no matter how good the service was no matter how great the venue was uh, we had the biggest parking lots so we could accommodate you know these giant trade shows we had better parking than the convention center so better-
0: people would have a prom at the stadium
2: on like 25 proms a year really oh yeah i didn't even realize that was a thing it kind of dipped down a little bit when uh you know the riots started happening and the crime rate doesn't help out a lot because you got a lot of these kids that coming from the county, that their parents don't want to put them on a bus downtown Baltimore, which I understand. But, um, yeah, about 25 problems a year, about, you know, 20 weddings a year, you know, and, and decent-sized events like that. A lot of corporate trade shows, stuff like that, too. But, like you know, the team, uh, I think the biggest challenge for us and and my predecessor uh, at the stadium, uh, who uh, I'm still am in contact with, she's my, my former executive sous chef is now the exec chef there, uh, you know, the media um, stuff. So, CBS or Fox will be there for a week, and they're getting three meals a day leading up to the game, you know, on top of everything else, and that's, those can be challenging. December usually is like the toughest month in the football world because you do a lot of Christmas parties, then you have a a game the next day for 70,000 people, so it
0: adds up quite a bit. It's a whole thing, volume cooking like that, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and kind of what we talked Mm -hmm. about earlier on is that, you know, uh, there's an expectation for... Chefs in this industry, uh, in, the, in the sports and entertainment industry, that you know, we want to see high-end food. We want to be able to see you know, great plates. And can you filet a fish? Can you do bono chicken? Can you do these these you know basic things that you know? Can you make a great sauce? Can you? How great is your plate presentation? But you know, at the end of the day, it's like if you can't make five thousand crab cakes, uh, if you you know, we're making 150 gallons of bechamel sauce, you know, a day. You know, that's what I want to see. That's the stuff that people need to kind of translate to and think people miss out on. They're used to making like, you know, pan sauces on the fly. It's like, I need to make 150 gallons of this same sauce and these will hold in the hot box for an hour and a half and then be able to be able to plate for, you know, a thousand person wedding. So those kind of things are tough too.
0: Are you getting employees with uh, already high volume backgrounds or are you having to train? Are you getting like line cooks from restaurants in there and then having to train them how to scale up and cook like that?
2: It's, it's a mixed bag. I think that um, people that come into the industry with that experience kind of stay in it, you know, like they're, they're familiar with it, you know. So you get a lot of people like, you know, they, they follow like the, the pattern of like, oh, I used to work at the hospital now I work at the stadium, now I used to work at the convention center. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of been in those same like corporate, like juggernaut type buildings, you know, casino, hotel, previous banquet work, stuff like that. And that's kind of the employees that I go after because I think a lot of times the volume scares them. And for someone, for me, with a, you know, mild case of ADD and a little mix of OCD in there as well, I like doing different things. So, like, in in one day, I like doing many different projects. Like, you know, I like to do, all right, working on this, we'll do this, we'll do this. In those kinds of environments, you may be making, you know, you might be cutting cake for two days straight. The same chocolate cake for two days, you know, or something like that. Or you're cutting, you know, mirepoix for Four days in a row, because you need four hundred pounds of it at the end of the week. You know, so those kinds of things, I think, it's a hard adjustment to kind of get around for people that come from a restaurant. And they're like, you know, I used to make you know a six pan of like you know hollandaise sauce. and like, now nah, you got to make six gallons of it.
0: Yeah, I found the same thing working for Sodexo, you know, especially people who had never been in the industry because we'd hire people who haven't worked at all and they want to come in and they think it's like they do two days on prep and then they're going to be working the line next day. It's like, no, you were really hired to do prep and that means (laughs) that like pretty much your whole job for the foreseeable future is going to be every day doing prep. Like it might be different stuff but you're going to be cutting vegetables for soup today and tomorrow you're going to be cutting vegetables for meatloaf and the day after that you're going to be cutting (laughs) vegetables for the salad bar and it's really hard to find people who also want to do that because so, you have these people who are kind of like i'm over cutting vegetables it's like but someone needs to do that that's it's that's what pre- that's what prep is you know it's not all glory of the the hotline yeah
2: and I, i'd say that you know uh to this day i, I could probably still do a, you know with, with those kinds of uh, um lines of work for myself included I, you you timed yourself like you know your your stats on how fast can i break down a 50 pound bag of onions how fast can I do 40 pounds of potatoes? You know, those kinds of stats, like, you kind of keeping the back of your mind. And, and I think that's kind of more of the corporate mass production mindset for a lot of these guys. But, um, you know, I, there, there, there were a couple of different cases where, like, you know, I had the special guys that would just come in, and they liked doing that stuff, too. And I used to praise those guys, like, hold on to those guys. Like, I had one guy that just wanted to do pit barbecue, and that's all he wanted to do. And he came in at 40 hours a week, and that's it. And he was great at it. And those kind of guys, like, you need, you know, because, like, they, they stay focused and they, it's repetitive and uh, consistent, though, too, which is also great.
0: But So do you miss uh, smaller-scale cooking? Like, are there days where you just kind of wish you were in a restaurant environment doing high, more high-end stuff or more hands-on and kind of executing? Or are you kind of past that at this point?
2: I mean, I think that uh, for me, and it kind of goes back to like the same, like, I think, uh, starting out in, in the culinary world. It used to be that just being the executive chef of a restaurant was, like, the peak for us. You know, that was, like, that was it. If you had your own business or you were the executive chef of the restaurant, that was it. And once you get a taste for the big stuff, it really it's hard to let that go. Because, like, it, the excitement and the uh, the planning of that, logistics of that, the execution of that, the hopeful accomplishment of that is is you know, thrilling. And I think that, for me, it would be hard to go back to a smaller thing unless it was completely my own. And I think that's kind of, like, the the... the, the uh, where I juggle with, you know, it's like, I I would go smaller, but if it was, it would have to be completely mine, 100% owned and my own thing. But yeah, I think uh, I think the big stuff is fun. So
0: yeah, I think you're either made for it or you're not. You know, I've seen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
2: like we get a lot of guys, and back to like the point about the tastings. You know, we get a lot of guys, and they have these great resumes, they have these great experiences, and you know, they've worked for you know, eight famous chefs and they've been to New York and they've been to Paris and then all those great things. And then they come in to see like, you know, a stadium environment or a concert venue environment or, you know, a large banquet hall, center, and they just completely lose their minds and they just can't keep up with the pressure of it. And they end up, you know, quitting soon or self-sabotaging themselves and to some degree. And, uh, and that's it. I think it's a, it's a weird dynamic, but, uh, I think what I've been a champion for, at least in my career for because, you know, I spend a lot of time now recruiting, so I go to culinary schools and um, trade schools and things like that to kind of find these next groups. It's like, you know, that's all well and good, you know, but, you know, if you go work for Jose Andres, he's going to pay you minimum wage right now. You know, it's like, I'm going to pay you five bucks more than that an hour, and you're going to learn some real business tactics and stuff like that. You're going to learn some real skills that will apply to, you know, your business that you want to run somewhere else and get those loans paid off faster, hopefully, too.
0: That's what I said over and over. I mean, I came out of culinary school and I had to pay 404 a month for 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. and then... I thought my culinary degree was going to get me this high paying job and it didn't. And you know, like the restaurants <laughs> didn't want to pay anything, but I got paid a lot more to go into contract food service. And that's what I needed to do to, to get the bills paid. Yeah. But then now as a business owner, looking back at working for a company like so I've worked for Ikea, you know, big companies that know how to make money. They know how to market. They know how to do all that stuff is a really great education. And so, you know, I tell people all the time, if, if your end goal is to maybe own your own business, you'd probably do better off getting into a big corporate environment where you learn financials and kind of that skills other than just cooking on a line.
2: Absolutely. I think that um where I think the successes of uh, and you know, I touched briefly on my culinary career, my brief resume, you know, I didn't mention the other ten restaurants that I worked at that have all closed since then, you know. We leave those ones out, of course. Um but uh, you know, there's been a couple of restaurants that I've worked for that we we're here, in Frederick. We we're here in Baltimore, and uh, you know, it was a line cook situation or a sous chef situation, where it was a couple of weeks, couple of months. You know, just kind of feeling things out. But knowing now, what, if I had known what I would known then, I mean, granted, I wasn't in a position to run their business for them. You see what needs to be done with the business, and I think that it's given me more of an analytical mindset as a chef. Uh, the the profession is evolving from being you know a tradesman and a craftsman to you know, a business entity, a business manager. And understanding that side of it, I think, it's a, tough, it's a tough act to follow, a tough balance to keep because people that get in this industry are usually passionate about it. And let's be honest, it's, it's a tough industry to get into unless you aren't passionate because you're, you're putting yourself up against a lot of hours and a lot of low-paying jobs and a lot of tough situations to be in. So you have to fight for it a little bit. And I think when you open a business, um, a small-scale business, it's tough to kind of keep that balance, too, where your passion is going to keep you keeping the business afloat. And passion is tough to sell sometimes to people that may not share the same vision you have. But you see a lot of guys, and they're mortgaging their house, and they're selling their cars, putting all their life into this business that ultimately may be a fail. And you know it's really sad to see that. Uh, I think that you know from what I've learned from just being... On a large-scale production, you can apply a lot more to those kinds of businesses now and kind of keep those together, but also recognize when it's a bad investment or when there's mistakes being made.
0: Do your cooks, does anyone have any kind of autonomy or creative freedom or anything, or is it more at that scale, like the military or brigade? You Because know, I think <laughs> you are seeing, I think, people who want to have some kind of feeling like they have an impact or some flexibility, but I imagine there's not a lot of room for that in a program so big that, you know, cooks can't freestyle anything, obviously, you know, um, set recipes and so forth. But is there any, any flexibility
2: at all? There's, there's a thing that I always kind of, uh, to this day, I still adapt, you know, it's like, you know, um, I'm happy to take all considerations, all requests, you know, (laughs) happy to, when time permits, though, you know, it's like, that bride wants the, wants the one that she saw in the appetizer, the appetizer she saw in the, in, the, in the brochure. She doesn't want your creative spin on it right now, unfortunately. So there's that side of it, of course. But um, I think that any any chef um, or manager that doesn't listen to his employees or, or recognize those talents is doomed to fail. And so anytime that we were able to have someone come in and say, hey, you know, what do you think of this? Let's taste it. Let's evaluate it. And as you guys know, it's not as simple as just saying, "Hey, that's the that's the new way we're doing the, the cheeseburger now. Let's just do it this way." You have to make sure that it's 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 productive and it's efficient and and uh, cost-effective and all those other things. But yeah, open in the process for sure. I think that's a, a great way to like get your staff to, you know, it shows your staff some respect. Um, so they feel appreciated and they feel like they're they matter in the situation, but also you may be devel- be developing someone else's career at that very moment, you know, they may be
0: you know, this is how they, their perception of the industry changes. Is that you're able to listen to those guys? You know, yeah, I think that was one of the hardest challenges I had hiring, especially the higher up chefs who worked in restaurants and coming in. It's like, well, you know, we have a a recipe index. You know, because there's so many things now. Um, allergens is huge. Oh, sure. I mean, allergens has always been huge, but we're telling the public now even more that we're going to spell out all that stuff. So you can't be freestyling that. And then now more places are committing to nutritional values. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then yeah. from the business end, the you know food costs. So you, it's hard to just come in and say like, hey, we want to run this today. It's like, well, we need a standardized recipe. People need to be able to execute it you know, we need to cost it out and have all that information. Sure. And I see a lot of people getting frustrated that uh, you know, it's not as quick as if you're the chef at a restaurant just putting like five specials on the menu tonight. Especially for large volume,
2: you know, exponentially the difference between two percent milk and heavy cream really adds up. You know, those kinds of things you have to be careful of. Um in, in terms of not just dollar value but also caloric count and things like that. So yeah, I'm sure that sauce is gonna get a lot better with, you know, heavy cream than with half and half, but at the same time, one, the the calorie count's now off, the fat count's way too high, and uh, it's costing you way too much money to make that sauce now because you're making it for 5,000 people. Allergen awareness is a great thing you touched on. You know, people are like, oh, well, I I added some soy dressing to this, and I thought it made it taste better. Yeah, but now, like, anyone with a soy allergy is going to be run out the door. You know, like, there's things like that you have to be careful of. Yeah, I think the, the nutritional count thing has been a very big influence on corporate chefs for sure do
0: you guys have nutritional information for all your products at all your venues or is that slowly being rolled out like i think that the
2: biggest hang-up of that has been the bureaucracy behind it Mm -hmm. and the red tape that i started that project a couple years ago with the with the aramark and it was it was um they created a deadline it was like two years out and then you got like two days before that deadline they extended it a year and then you're like, wait! I just killed myself for the past four weeks getting this together, and I have another year. And then, well, next year we're planning on rewriting the menu anyway, and all this other stuff. So that got getting pushed back. And then a lot of people stopped requesting it. And as far as I know, at least nobody that I know of has ever been audited on their nutritional information. Mm. Um, There's been a couple lawsuits, but like you know, one in you know one out of a million you hear about on the news. I think. Um, and mostly, that's from uh, misrepresentation of the, of the items. Uh, usually, from like a, a, a cost standpoint, not necessarily from a nutric- nutritional um, uh, value change. You know, I remember the Seinfeld episode when they had the non-fat yogurt. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's going to be had fat in it all on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those kinds of things mm-hmm. exist, of course. And I don't think it's that terrible, but yeah.
0: Yeah, there's so much that goes into like that high volume kind of cooking. Right. I mean. Uh,
2: The recipes themselves are tough, and, um, you know, I don't think we've ever had a situation. We did a burger at the stadium a couple years ago, and we called it the tailgater. And it was one of those, like, showy things. It actually ended up in, like, USA Today. as one of the top ten crazy stadium foods, you know. And it was um, uh, a five-ounce burger, had bacon, kielbasa, crab dip, pretzel bun, you know, a beer cheese sauce, and then like be like a chicken wing, like skewered on top as like a garnish, you know. It was like this ridiculous thing. Tailgater, all the foods you could have in a tailgate in one sandwich, and I think it was close to twenty seven hundred calories. I think there was. i I might be being conservative on that. And like and and this was like the first year of the nutritional account display. Mm-hmm. Nobody even batted an eye. They were yeah. like, it was an eighteen dollar burger yeah cuz I mean and it was it's like you know 3 pounds of food and um 2700 calories and uh it was like, oh, that's great. You know, I feel that was like it.
0: you know what you're getting into with that. my my thing is when you have a salad that has more fat and calories than the burger. i like I just like a baseline like how many calories and how many grams of fat because sometimes you're like, I don't want that burger. I'll get the chicken salad and it's like, oh, but the ranch dressing added like five hundred calories right. <laughs> and ten grams of fat and the cheese is like, I should have just gotten the burger. But I don't think anyone's going in saying like, Oh, that burger's not a health food. That that yeah,
2: well, yeah. I think you see a lot of that with a a lot of the new stuff, especially with the salads and stuff. And it's like you know, this is a really great salad. You know, what you like about it? Well, I love this. I love the bacon and the uh, <laughs> and the eggs and the um and uh, the blue cheese is great. And like, you sure you like the salad or you like the toppings? Yeah. You know? But, yeah. Do you just want a sandwich instead? Yeah, can I just get you a BLT? You know, <laughs> make yourself happier. <laughs>
1: So let's backtrack a little bit, and this is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is culinary school. Would you like to kind of go through uh, you maybe like where you went, what you took from it, and what you thought you were going to take? Maybe how you were disappointed, if you were disappointed. Oh, sure. <laughs> any of that stuff. What are your thoughts
2: on um, culinary school? So uh, my first dabble in in culinary school, and granted, the restaurants that I started out in weren't necessarily the most high-end restaurants. Yeah, I wasn't working in white tablecloth cloth restaurants to start out with. So at, at some point, I knew that, uh, you know, I was 19 or, or so, I believe at the time, I needed to get some experience and get a diploma on the wall and to appease my parents as well, to have some sort of degree in some sort of field. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognized I needed a little extra. And so I, I started out doing just a Quick one-year trade program at FCC, and which I think still is thriving to this day, for the most part. And it was very basic, you know. There were some minor business classes, you know, stuff like that. Like this is how you read a spreadsheet, and how to read an invoice, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, general knife skills, general saw skills, and stuff like that. You know, from there, I did I did a, a associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and I'm currently an MBA student through Johnson and Wales uh, in hospitality management as well. Uh, I think that if I could have stopped after that first year, I would have and put my efforts into uh, you know, a four-year degree at a state, a state school or state college, you know, something like that. General business, general education, because you can get a great degree at University of Maryland for much cheaper than anything that I got you know, at a four-year school in Baltimore and uh, at a culinary school. Having much better professors that are there to teach you business skills as opposed to whatever the culinary school can find that wasn't good enough to be hired at University of Maryland. No offense, guys. But, um, you know, uh, having some real real aspects of that and saving quite a bit of money and still being able to work. And after that first year, uh, I learned a couple of different skills in that program, but there was nothing else that was really taught from a culinary perspective outside of that program that I didn't already know from industry experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the experience that I've gained since then has been – real world stuff. And, you know, the, the pedigrees that you kind of get in culinary programs are from the chefs and the lineage that that, that come before you. And I think I I respect that much more
0: than uh, a degree now. So at FCC, do they give you guidance on Do you find that they're pushing you to then continue your education at another culinary school? Um, What's that look like when you're there?
2: FCC definitely at the time did. And, um, you know, there was a couple different fillers uh, that, we had our small culinary, um, you know, corner of the kitchen area there at the Votek building, and there was a Bolton Board that had a brochure for Baltimore National College and a brochure for CIA and a brochure for Johnson and Wales, and I think that they were looking for that um, to promote that as well, and that definitely, you know, as a young kid, I was I was like, you know, oh my God, these are these really great schools and these are really great opportunities, and. I know this guy went there and this guy went there, and those are kind of great things too. The business of itself is that a culinary school is looking to generate um, tuition. They're they're a for-profit company, they're an entity that needs to make money. And they're not doing it out of out of necessarily desire to be better professionals in the industry. So, like, you know, CIA, for example, which is arguably the, the biggest and you know self-proclaimed but also probably nationally recognized as the best culinary school in the country they're putting out, you know, 60 students every 2 months. I mean, or more. I think it's probably much more than that. And I think the tuition now is $80,000 or more a year. And uh, I was there <laughs> for the, I was there last year for some continuing education classes and you know, I mean, $80,000 so you're looking at 160 just to get a 2-year degree. A lot of shitheads come out of CIA that are just have no idea what they're doing and and they get but they got the student loan check and they got the diploma and they're out the door and that's it. You could get just as much out of any culinary program at a VOTech school or a high school program or a community college if you're willing to put the effort in. You know, it's like if you're doing the studies on your own, you can make your own way.
0: And I also found as a culinary graduate, no one... Ever asked to see a transcript or even proof that I went to a culinary school? Like, it was just good enough to put on your resume that I went to Johnson Wales and have a bachelor's in culinary, but nobody ever asked to see my grades. So I could have been an A student or I could have been a D student. Oh, sure. And yeah. then on top of that, I feel like I probably could have even lied about that. Like, as someone who's hired hun- literally hundreds of people, I've never asked to see any kind of proof when someone said they went to culinary school. So, how much clout is that actually by oh, you? Yeah.
2: I tried following up on one resume one time, and it was going to cost me thirty-eight dollars. And I said, "Screw this! I mean, that's a waste. Of, I'm going to pay thirty-eight bucks to see if this guy's lying or not." You know, there are standards. I think that a lot of industries, or like the ACF, for example, American Culinary Federation, tried to instill that there were some standardization of education or training or development. But you know, I think that, at least from my own experience, um, no matter what degree you have, what experience you have it may or may not just be a good fit to be in that business. You know, like, you know, uh, if, the, if the person's not in there, they just, you know, they may may do a great at the previous job and they come in there to your, to your place, they do a terrible job, They may go on to do something great beyond that. But I think for me, and what I tell people now, is that, you know, I think a bachelor's degree is a waste of time at any culinary school, bar none, take that to the bank. I think an associate's degree depends on who you are and what your situation is, if it makes sense to go to, CAA or Stratford and Associates that degree is not going to get you any more money per hour it's going to get you probably to be recognized more on Monster.com or LinkedIn and that's about it
0: when I started at Sodexo I was new to the company and they brought me in at the bottom of the pay grade because I hadn't worked for the company so the degree didn't buy me the clout like it might have helped me get in the door because they require degrees. But then when they said, you know, the range starts at X and goes to Y, they were bringing me in towards the bottom level. And I said, why is that? And they said, you're new to the company. I said, but I've been in the food industry for more than 20 years. I've been an executive chef for other contract companies. But within their company, their policy is if you're new to the company, there's a certain barrier that you can't come in above. So even then the degree (laughs) didn't help. Like maybe it helped get the interview.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. It gets you the interview. It gets you – you know, there's an algorithm that all these big companies have with their filtering process the resume applications and stuff like that. And having an associate's degree gets you in this many more channels um, within the hiring process, for example. But again, you know, to your point, yeah, you know, you're going to be still be making you know, minimum wage or at best a little bit more than that.
0: Do you think that's something that's going to change and die off? I mean, because it is very exclusionary. If you're a... Young line cook who didn't go to school, you can get a job at any restaurant, probably in D.C., but if you want to move into, say, a Sedexo or an Aramark, they are saying you have to have a culinary degree, and at what point is that exclusionary and kind of classist and based on, you know, financial... Um, financial backgrounds you know because i don't think everyone most people can't afford to go spend eighty thousand dollars a year or maybe even twenty thousand dollars a year to get a degree what if they're just a good cook and have been cooking for 10 years already in the industry how are we saying you know you can't come work for us i
2: think eventually you're gonna find there's gonna be some corruption or something where some alumni board has influence on some board of directors from some school to some company you know to some degree but um no i think to your point i said you know uh Having a culinary school degree, I think, is is not necessarily the most beneficial business degree to have. And, and there's only so much you can learn in a culinary school business program. Some companies will require a bachelor's degree, fine. But I think you should open-ended to be more than just a culinary degree. You know, if you, if you require college, college credits for, for application for your job, sure, but have some open mind of, to what other degrees are applicable to what you're doing. You know, general business degree, I think, is a great idea. A liberal arts degree, have that plus, you know, five years of line experience, you're hired in my book, you know.
1: So, it's pretty much a unanimous call that everybody says, like, don't spend the money on culinary school. But a lot of them haven't been to, like, a first-year program at FCC. And for the listeners, I don't know if we clarified this, FCC is Frederick Community College here in our county. Would you recommend that as, like, a base of knowledge, maybe, or do you think that's kind of like arbitrary?
2: I, I don't think it's really arbitrary in that there is some validation to it. And and to be honest, there's still some things that I think about from that school uh, to this day, you know, 20 years later. But I, I think that there's many opportunities out there um, outside of just that. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend uh, CIA uh, for the ProChef uh, program. And I think it was a great idea that CIA had as part of their continuing education programs, where the essence is it's a one, two, or three level program where they're defining different levels of, of expertise. And it's not as formal as this to say, but uh, basically they were saying that if you were able to pass level one, you were as good as a one-year student at CIA. Mm-hmm. And if you were able to pass level two, you had were you able to be a student for an associates and a three for a master's and that you had comparable experience and they were taking into consideration life experience and, and, and everything else beyond that. And I mean, it's for, for a five day test, I think it was close to $8,000, which, you know, to everyone listening, get your company to pay for that, not you. Um, But um, uh, you know, with that in mind, it's like, you know, you go back to the hotel room at the end of the night and you're doing the math and it's like, I could have gone to Frostburg or, University of Maryland or Salisbury, here in the state, and saved forty, fifty thousand dollars. Go up here, take that fifty thousand dollars I saved, do a couple of these pro chef certifications, and have the same diploma as a kid that just spent one hundred and sixty thousand dollars on his education too. You know, I think that that can kind of be an, another creative option. But speaking from someone that's hired a lot of people and done does a lot of job interviews, I look at the experience before I look at the education, and that's just me. I look at the experience first and then see what they have the education-wise. And typically that is only because the company that I work for dictates a certain level of education. But ultimately the ones that have the experience you know, are the ones that are getting those higher advanced positions. I think for younger kids, for younger uh, culinarians, or even people that are, are job transplants, you know, they're just transitioning to the industry, having um, an open mind and a, and a work ethic and an attitude about it you know, that's a big part of it, too. Uh, there's a lot of people against, uh, you know, corporate chefs and all that stuff. But, you know, most corporate chefs have 401ks and in health insurance. FYI, it's a good thing. <laughs> um, uh, that's not a terrible thing. But I don't think it's actually needed. I think that, you know, if you have the, the right ambition and the right right skill set and if
0: you want to fly to Paris for a couple months and be able to do that, too, it'd <laughs> be great as well, but... Yeah. And I know some young guys who, you know, went and staged at places over in Europe and for the cost of an education, you know, they just decided I'm going to move to Copenhagen and work at Noma, you know, right, um, right. and you just have to frighten your living <laughs> expenses for a few months, but it's like, would you rather hire someone who came out of the CIA or someone who worked for Rene Redzepi for a year? You know, right. it's like, <laughs> um, in some respects that's, that's a viable option. I also so I am very pro learning. Like I'm someone who likes to learn every day. Like I'm reading cookbooks, I'm watching videos, I'm networking with people. And I think there's also a lot of great classes and workshops, uh, in a month and a half, the Philly chef conference is coming up and I'm going up there for that for two days. And it's two days of like workshops and demos and lectures. And I think that's the kind of thing. And that's, hundred and ninety five dollars for like two days right, and i think right. it's money well spent to go do things like that and i've taken butchery classes um and i think there's a lot of ways you can continue your education and kind of get into the things that you want to learn without having to spend a ton of money on a very broad thing you can start kind of specializing in little things That's and it is realistically a very small window of when culinary school's been around. Like, when you look at the the thousands of years that people have been around and working in food service, like, it's only, like, a 50-year window. Like, it's become the norm or the expectation now. But when you look back at it, like, 1985, zero people went to culinary school, you know. And they worked in restaurants. You had, like, the best restaurants. Like, nobody who was at – I mean, I'm kind of speaking – Um, randomly, but like Chez Panisse, you know, like none of those people, you think of that as a great restaurant, did any of them go to culinary school or um, those finer restaurants that were around, you just cooked places and then you moved up and you learned on the job. And now the de facto expectation is that you go to culinary school, but that's still a very new thing. And how do we reverse that now while it's, you know, still realistically in its infancy? And I even think looking at organizations like the American Culinary Federation, like that might be a good first step when you look at what the membership cost is that it's, say, $200. It's probably good money well spent, like even as high school – they take high schoolers, right? Can you join the ACF? Yeah, I think it's a junior – you know, like ACF, yeah. m- maybe if you're 17 years old, have your parents pay 200 dollars for you to join the ACF and get in there and talk to them and do some networking. And every month they're doing classes and workshops and field trips and stuff. And the networking uh, is, is, I think maybe I, I would suggest sure. maybe before you drop literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, get into something like that where you can go to a couple meetings and network with those chefs. And you know what you probably could get a job offer. I bet if I bet if you right now joined the ACF and went to your local chapters meeting, um, within the first meeting, you could probably find a job working for Hands a, down. a really awesome chef. And that would be a viable option. And then just stay in the ACF and um, go to all their educational opportunities. I, I just renewed my ACF membership
2: for the sole reason of recruiting new cooks. And that's the only reason I really... Uh, I want to get back in there is so that I see that that is a, a great resource for us to be networking and finding those opportunities for those young guys and having a structured apprenticeship program. I think it's a great thing, and that's where you learn. That's where you get a lot of those, those great things, and especially being able, to, if, as a as a high schooler or a teenager coming into these programs, being able to talk to some professionals on a professional yeah. level, um, it's just going to help you out in terms of your dialogue with the interview process or. Understanding what the, the everyone's looking for in these, in these job interviews.
0: I mean, I do think that the challenge there, though, is like with the Baltimore chapter, it is based out of Stratford University, right. which was formerly BIC. And when you have presidents and past presidents who are actually instructors at that school, does it lean towards pushing those people into that? So it would be really interesting. I, I probably need to touch base with um, – some of the guys there in the chapter and see what their stance is, would they ever not recommend culinary school to someone or are they kind of pushing that, you know, is there an agenda there? (laughs) So it is, you know, you do have to kind of tread lightly with that one. um, But I do think that is uh, a viable option.
2: I would hope that the ACF um, has enough integrity that uh, they'd be willing to stand up against Stratford, you know, and recognize that the free meeting space isn't necessarily worth jeopardizing kids' futures for that. I mean, a bold statement. But, um, you know, uh, I think that supporting the ACF program is essential to that and that it may be one of the only professional venues or avenues right now to find a culinary structure program that isn't culinary school, you know?
1: If, if there's any, like, really young people listening to this, one thing I would recommend, it gave me a good base of knowledge and kind of inspired me to always be into food. I took like commercial foods, it's probably called something different, but it's just your high school, like food program, not the CTC one. You could do that too, but it's like, those are free programs that you get the same basic knowledge from. I'm pretty sure. I know for me, it was like, we learned about food safety. We learned about organization and cleanliness and, mise en place and some recipes you get your hands dirty like so that was like a good base of knowledge for me and it i, I think taking those classes obviously I took them because I was into food but it kind of left me with it left me with an interest in in the food industry from then on you know like I never really let go of it so that's what I got on on education and culinary school and stuff
2: Yeah, some some of those uh you know a lot of the programs they help stoke the fires a lot yeah. of times, you know, and that's and that's a good thing. It's just an investment, I think, that is so extreme for the amount of return that you get on it. I think that's like, it's kind of the part of the problem. But, you know, I think that uh, maybe subconsciously that's what a lot of chefs are doing now is like we're doing these workshops, we're doing these trainings, we're doing these like seminars to kind of give people an out, you know, of saying like, yeah, you, know, you don't need to go necessarily down this road to, you know, you don't need to drop a, you know $200,000 on a culinary education when you could do this with me and... We could get some experience out of it, too.
0: Yeah, and I've said before that, like... As a hiring manager, I was looking more towards attitude, soft skills, like how you play on a team. Oh, yeah. I've had, I mean, I know you have hired people with a great resume, great experience, and they come in and they just don't click in there. They're not a team player. They just, you know, they're not the right fit. And it doesn't matter whether they went to CIA, Johnson & Wales, have worked wherever. Um, they're just not the kind of person that you want in your kitchen, but if you get a young, I've had a lot of 17-year-olds who come in starting part-time during uh, the school year and then during the summer they want more hours and then you train them, prep. And I love that you could take someone with zero experience and train them the way you want them as opposed to inheriting all these um, bad habits and so forth and then treat them right and you can hang on to them for a few years.
2: At least the chefs that I respect. A lot of times, you know, the older chefs and the guys that I kind of idolized that I knew as as a young culinary and growing up, they were more proud of the people that they developed than the dishes they created. And I think that was like a milestone for chefs. And that's one that's influenced me as well is that, you know, uh, they didn't invent a new pizza or they didn't invent a new sauce or they didn't, you know, that, that no one's ever going to be proud of the money they saved for some billion dollar company. You know, it's like, you know, I had a great profit margin back in 86, who cares, but they are proud of the people that they've developed. And I think that's a huge thing that it still exists in our, in our industry. So People that are proud of developing people and sharing their craft, and and pushing that that extra thing out there.
0: So, are you currently looking? Are you always in hiring mode? We're always negotiating. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think
2: that the the tough balance for us in the and seasonal chef work. So, you know, whether it's a stadium, um, arena, uh, amphitheater, concert venue, um, it's it's a tough balance to find someone that's willing to work crazy hours for four months out of the year. And then the other eight months, they're kind of like coming in, you know, pitter-patter here and there. You know, at the stadium, we had 140 cooks working on game day. And I probably only had 12 cooks in the offseason working for all those weddings and proms beyond that. So kind of keeping that uh, that ball in the air is tough. Uh, and that's why you, know, you become flexible with, you know, you, you have a full-time job, great. I'll work around their hours because I need you to be here nights and weekends. And a lot of teachers, a lot of, like, school people because they had the summers off and stuff like this. You know, they worked you know, with their wait staff. Or, Do
0: you guys work with unions? Is that something uh, that varies from place to place?
2: Uh, yeah. In the stadium world, um, unions were, depending on where you went, you know, um, Heinz Field was a big, in Pittsburgh, big union town. There, the cooks were actually um, part of the Teamsters Union, which is like one of the toughest unions in the United States. And that was always a fun negotiation process, a lot of people there, but um, um, big influential lawyer type guys would come in for those meetings.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I have a little experience, you know, as you work for the bigger companies they are at the small unit level or something like that, it's like some of them are unions, some of them are not. And just uh, that's something I'm still never used to working because I didn't come up seeing that and then starting to manage kitchens where you have a union in place and then, you know, you want to have a disciplinary conversation with one of your cooks, but it's not as easy as... You need the shop steward and HR representative <laughs> and the lawyer involved.
2: Yeah. My, my thing with unions, my first experience with unions, I was working at Cayman Yards and I was an hourly, uh, still an hourly position there. I was still in school, you know, my, my summer job, quote unquote. And I was doing promotion. They wanted to give me a raise. I was like, that's fantastic. And they said, hey, Dan, you're a great kid. Come to work on time. You work hard. Got some talent. Uh, we appreciate the effort. We want to give you a dollar an hour raise. And I said, that is awesome. That's fantastic. And the union stopped it. The union prevented my raise from happening. And I said to my union rep, I said, why did you stop? Like, I pay you money out of my paycheck every week to be my representative, to protect me as an employee. The employer is giving me a raise for my hard work. Why can't I get this raise? And they said, well, you all have enough seniority to get a raise. That there are people above you that deserve raises before you do.
0: Deserve because of seniority, not work ethic.
2: Exactly. That was where I kind of had a problem with it. I was like, okay, guys. It's like, so what motivation do I have
0: to keep working harder when these guys are coming in late and
2: lazy? They should get a raise before I do, but they're never going to get a raise, so if they never get it,
0: It's so bizarre. I like one of my first jobs. I was cooking in a hotel, and the staff, um, were union and the wait staff were, and they're like guaranteed X amount of tables, whether or not they can handle them. So it's like a busy mm. Friday night and you've got this one waitress and she's already swamped and she can barely keep up. And then a table comes in the door and you know, your best server wants to take that table, except it's not his turn to get the table. So they just pile on her because that's like her union, right? That she gets, you know, everyone gets four tables, even though he's done with his, um, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I know they served a purpose back in the day, but when you see things like that, like, it's going to be bad for service, it's going to be bad for morale, sure. and, and that whole thing. I just, that was the only time I'd actually worked in a place that um, personally had unions as opposed to, like, managing one.
2: It's another example of, 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 a, of an entity that was designed and implemented and, and started the unions for employer or employee interest, you know, to protect the employees, and once they just they learned they could make money off of that, it became like this corrupt entity. I think, and maybe I'll have a couple of union reps outside waiting to you know <laughs> like knock me out. Tread lightly. But um, <laughs> But uh, uh, I would say at that point, anyone listening that is involved in a union or working for a union, always know this: the employer will always benefit from the contract. the The CBAs, the collective bargaining agreements, in the end, never benefit the employee. Otherwise, the employer wouldn't sign them in uh, your best bet is to always know the contract better than anyone else study that thing and know it front to back and that's the only way that you can benefit in a union house at least from my personal experience
0: interesting advice <laughs> yeah I don't think I personally if I went back into cooking um, I don't think I would choose as a, a cook or a chef to go work for a place uh, that had a union in place if I could help it
2: they're tough I mean uh, as, a, as a manager who worked in a, a, with, with union employees and union cooks I would I would literally have a point blank conversation with my employees and say, read the manual. I cannot tell you what's in it because it would violate my part of this deal. Read the manual, understand your rights, understand you know that there can be other things done in the situation, or you can, you know, uh, with disciplinary action or with you know promotions or timelines of. of, Raises. I mean, those things are—they're all in there. He's got to find them, and uh, they're probably intentionally an extra forty pages to make things confusing. But uh,
0: every everything, everything with a contract like that is oh well, they the awful. But they say, "Did you read the contract?" That eight hundred-page document I got that you just like had me sign in thirty seconds when I was hired. Yeah.
2: I mean, the most famous thing I could say that I, I probably won't get in trouble for saying. Um, <laughs> There was a there was a it was a rule at one of the places I worked at one of the cities I've been to, that if we called an employee in or they were in, if they were scheduled to work, and they showed up and we decided to cut them because business was slow, they automatically got paid four hours, but only if they put the four hour request in. And so you know if you I had to come in Friday Friday at five eight, you know working five to ten that night or whatever five to close. Um, you show up at five and say, no, we don't need you tonight. You know, no one showed up. It's it's a slow night. Go home. They could appeal and get a four hour pay, four hours of of free money, uh, just for showing up. Um, but no one ever put it in. And like, I did like the math at the end of the year. I was like, you guys would have made like $5,000 in extra money this year if you just appealed for those four hours. But well, interesting. and
0: that's where you know i, I kind of like want to be on that side like i feel one of the things i don't, don't want to be so bold to say like i want to fight for workers rights but having worked in contract and corporate food service kind of seeing those things I do feel like it's a little exploitative of your employees, and I'm kind of over that, and I'm at the point in my life and career where I feel like I'm going to do what I can to educate younger people onto things like that and help them navigate it because it is almost like a predatory system where Mm -hmm. you're taking advantage of uh, young and inexperienced people, and I I wish it wasn't like that, and I just – you know, feel like I've done things uh, at work that I wasn't proud of because you're, like, towing the company line. Oh, sure. And then you get to the point where it's like, wow, I was kind of a shitty person sometimes. And to that point. Yeah, so people... I'm sorry to anyone who used to work <laughs> for me who's listening. I'm trying to make amends for some of those things. Can we things. do that
2: together? It's like all my former employees. I'm sorry. No, but uh, to that point, And everyone thinks, that, oh
0: hey, man, Dan, you're really
2: an asshole for not telling people about that. It's like I couldn't; I'd get fired, or I could get sued for letting people know of that stuff. You know, anything that would cost money to the company that, you know, was against management wishes, I could have gotten lost my job for that too. Unfortunately, but there was ways around it. I tried to say hey, that's why you read the contract. I would I would try to find ways to educate the employees without losing my own job, you know, but yeah, it's out there.
0: This is interesting. You're the first guest, I think, who's kind of uh, had the same background as me, and I don't think we've had anyone who's kind of done the corporate food service thing on before, and it's such a different world, and hopefully people listening um, kind of get more of a behind-the-scenes peek now into kind of how these things work because it is very different than restaurant life and some, something that I've spent the better part of my 20-plus years uh, in food service working in. It
2: certainly is a much larger and I would argue more stable area of the business that people don't necessarily think about. And as a joke I made earlier, you know, having the 401ks, having the health insurance, having those kind of benefits, paid vacation time, that, um, that adds up. That's, that's important. And not, not everyone offers that, especially in the lower level restaurants and stuff. And you know, when I came up in the industry, the pinnacle of, of being a chef at the time was executive chef. You get that title, you know, that's it. You're the, you've you've reached the top and that's what you want to be. And now it's like, you know, hey, there's Culinary Directors, there's FME directors, there's Vice President of Culinary International for North America's out there. Those kinds of titles exist that um you know the business is evolving into that you can go in those routes. And you know, as an executive chef of a restaurant, that could be your peak. And maybe you become the chef owner and then maybe that's the next peak. You know, um uh my, my existing title now is regional executive chef, you know. It's like beyond that I'll be director of culinary innovation and then vice president of hospitality. Like knock on wood. But, um, you know, those are the, that's the path that I'm currently trying to pursue. Um, uh, and hopefully I won't have to give up the white coat at any time soon, but, you know, that's the direction that I want to evolve to. And, and that's, you know, for impact and for uh, the scope of things too. I mean, it's, a, it's a huge all in the world of, of opportunity for advancement and, and, um, growth.
0: That's exciting. I mean, i I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. And I thought one day, like potentially I, I could get into that. That's something I would have liked to move into had I stayed where I was, but I just, I just really wanted to get back to cooking every day. I'm, I'm sure you, you <laughs> yeah. see, I mean, I feel like some people are more built for what you're doing and I just, you know, I'd go a month without cooking something and I just couldn't do it anymore. I felt like I was just doing office work. And, I, mean, I I could tell you
2: that I, I currently pretty much live in a Williams-Sonoma. I mean, that's like my life. And, um, uh, there are some opportunities, you know, it's not every day that I get to cook. Um, but, uh, there is a chance every day where I get to train someone how to cook mm-hmm. or develop a cook or a culinarian And I appreciate that just as much as I used to. And, you know, this time of year, we're doing recipe development and stuff like this. Being a corporate chef that travels, I, I don't have a kitchen. So I am technically a chef without a kitchen. But, um, you know, I, I have my home kitchen. So, like, tomorrow I'm going to be doing about 10, 10 menus tomorrow from my house and taking pictures and sending them out to emails to everyone to evaluate. Like, that's my job tomorrow. So it's a weird one.
1: That, um, that actually – segues me into one of the questions that I haven't asked you that that I pretty much ask everybody is, what are you currently cooking at home? Oh, my goodness. That's a broad question when I usually ask it. Like with some people, it's like, what are you currently cooking figuratively, literally, whatever. Uh, But for you, I'm kind of curious what you cook at home. So
2: I would say like uh, there's two things that I usually like to do at home. And one, I call them the makeup meal. If I go out and have, like, a bad pizza or bad, like, egg drop soup somewhere, uh. I go home and I have to make it <laughs> yeah. to my standards, you know, like, wherever they may be. Or at least I like that. Find the best way. So it's, like, called it the makeup meal where it's, like, I had some really bad pizza on Saturday. I had Mad at me- myself. Right. <laughs> I'm like, this is terrible. So yesterday I made some pizza dough and then made some sauce and, you know, engineered that a little bit. Um, and the other thing is, like, I like to reimagine or reimagine redefine, like, classics. I think kind of the retro stuff is really fun right now. So I think one of my favorite examples of recently, um, uh, I love the diner classic hot turkey sandwich, like, you know, mashed potatoes and, like, bread and open face with, like, too much gravy. I was like, how can we make this, like, a, you know, a defined or redefined dish or, you know. So I took a whole turkey. Great. I live alone. No roommates, no kids. Single. I bought like a 14 pound turkey and I deboned the entire thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like but I, I wanted the whole turkey though, you know, it's like, um, and, uh, the turkey season is kind of like winding down right now for a lot of people. So I couldn't really find one, but, um, 14 pounds is good enough. And so, you know, I deboned the entire thing and I rolled it up to like, almost like a, a turkey porchetta style thing, yeah, yeah. you know, and, um, wow. seasoned it really well and I roasted it in the oven and then, uh, um, I decided to bake my own bread, and I decided to uh, use chicken stock instead of water in the bread dough. And then I infused um, parsley, sage, and rosemary and thyme into the dough, so it tasted like stuffing. Mm. Baked the bread, sliced it, butter toasted it, and then you know had like the turkey roulade of like you know this great. And the what benefited me was he had the skin, and then in every slice he had the dark meat and the light you know the white meat too, which I gotta have the dark meat. Made a great gravy off of that, so those kinds of things I have fun with. But that
1: sounds amazing, actually.
2: So, <laughs> you know, it's like those kinds of fun, and uh, you know, crack a beer while I'm doing it and like watching Netflix. That's like the fun. That's a fun day for me at home. But as a I, and people often ask this, you're a corporate chef, you're a traveling chef, but you have a home office. Yep, yeah, I do. So today when I leave here, I'm gonna stop by Wegmans and probably do some other runs around the around the area and buy a bunch of stuff. Um, Stuff that I think is either cool or exciting or looking fun. There's a couple of different. I go with a, like a mild plan. Like I'm going to make a ravioli, but I don't know if it's going to be what type of dough or what type of uh, filling or what kind of sauce. But I know I want to make a pasta of some type of a, a filled pasta that just mm. seems exciting to me right now. And I will take that home with me today, and I'll map some things out, crack a few cookbooks. Uh, and I'm still a cookbook fan. I know people like get away from it and all that, but the online stuff—it's not a feel of a cookbook in your hand. It's really like. Feels like you're just inheriting a lot of that knowledge already. Just mm-hmm. opening that book.
1: This is chefs without restaurants podcast, and I, I ask almost everybody if they have restaurant dreams. Do you Re- have restaurant dreams?
2: Yeah, mostly like. Are they ever good though? They get a good responses with that. Like, people say, "Oh yeah." Times, yeah. I do. I think a, a lot of it's based on memories and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I think. You know, you kind of these weird like you know Vietnam War flashbacks, like you know, traumatic <laughs> stress. is kind of like kicking in there a little bit. I think that one of the best things for me is being able to keep a pad of paper by my by my bed because I think we you, 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 I, I think about stuff when I'm sleeping. and I wake up and like I write it down. Nine out of ten times, it's completely nonsense. And, but like so that one out of ten times, it's usually something kind of cool. I think that I can I can try out later on. A, a different way of making a, a, a sauce or a soup or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Those are kind of a thing. I think that I was watching a documentary about like, like porchettas when I decided to do this giant turkey thing on my house.
1: I really want to try that now. It was really great. <laughs> I got to learn how to debone a turkey.
2: Not as, well, see, that's the thing. Practice on a turkey and you can work your way down to like, to like a duck. You know? Yeah. Turkey's easy way to start. It's a lot bigger. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, I think uh, we should get into the on the fly round. This is like sort of like a speed round. I just ask you a bunch of questions real quick and try to answer them as fast as you can. There's nothing crazy in there. All right. On the fly. Okay. What's your favorite tool in the kitchen? Knife. Favorite food to eat? Pizza. Ha <laughs> ha. Mm. If you had all the monies, what is the first position you would hire for? Sous chef. Okay. Uh, Who's your favorite chef? Doesn't have to be famous. My
2: mom? Is that fair? Yes. My mom.
1: That's probably the best answer we've gotten so far. Yeah, my mom, for sure. Art or science? Art. One thing you do differently from everybody else?
2: Um, I think that I'm able to adapt to many different people's levels of uh, influence, background, and culture.
1: Cool. Hmm. Uh, What's your favorite digital tool? It could be anywhere from, like, something on your phone to, like, a scale or thermometer. <laughs> um. <laughs> Digital tool.
2: <laughs> Digital tool. Uh, I love Bluetooth headphones. Nice. I think that's one of the greatest things for chefs in the world. Can talk on the phone. Keep your hands free. It's a great thing in the kitchen.
1: Uh, could you recommend a book?
2: Uh, I think one of my favorites is The Perfectionist. I forget the, I forget the author, but it's a great Great book about the um, uh, chef in, in Paris who was pursuing his uh, Michelin stars. And I won't spoil the ending for you, but uh, a great book. Kind of put things in perspective on the industry.
1: How about a podcast? This one, of course. <laughs> Figured you might say that. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite culinary resource? Amazon. I hate to say it. Amazon.
2: I'll tell you why. Because you can find any tool, any book, videos. It's just out there. I think Amazon is one... I'm an addicted Amazon Prime member. Eventually, they'll hire for chefs, but I think it's great. I love Amazon because I like, you know, hey, I need this br- this brass, meat you know meat hammer and this book. That's like all great stuff.
1: I <laughs> nice. love it. Uh, how do you decompress? I
2: compete. Uh, well, don't compete, but um, a little bit mixed martial arts. Oh, cool. Yeah, I do jujitsu, boxing, um, and I just started learning guitar too. Those are like my big things right now. Um, music has always been great. I think every chef wants to be a rock star, like deep down. So I started taking Makes guitar sense. lessons, midlife <laughs> crisis style. And um, I've been doing, uh, I, I box and, and compete in jujitsu. And that is better than Prozac, let me tell you. Yeah. That's the way to go. For I can sure. dig it. Better than any drug or alcohol. Uh,
1: what's the best meal you've ever had? I have such a long answer
2: for this. I know it's speed round. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> it's okay. You're doing way better than a lot of our guests. Oh, right really? Good. <laughs> yeah, a true speed round. <laughs>
2: all right. So I think that any meal, whenever I ask someone what their favorite food is or their favorite meal was, I have to know everything about the situation, mm-hmm. where they were at. Yeah, yeah. It's very with. important. Right. And I think that atmosphere plays a big part in it. And I think that also kind of speaks to like what I do on a daily basis as well. The food tastes better when the team wins. Let's be all honest here. And I think that's a big part of it. So, you know, I was, my favorite meal ever was a ham and cheese toasted sandwich the cream of mushroom soup. I was in Ireland doing a stage for a really well known chef. And I'm like in this pub that was built before the United States even existed, overlooking like the cliffs of like, you know, Ireland on the ocean. And I'm like, this is the perfect moment for you right now. And it was just like when was It was, like, it, was like, it was raining. It was pouring. It was freezing cold. I am like this, this little potbelly stove, this very like old leather chair, like a bunch of old Irish people like giving me like Guinness, and I'm eating this, the toaster special. I think it was like three euro. That was a moment for me. I was like, I'm I'm right where I need to be at this point. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that was a super cool answer. Thank you. Not bragging, but...
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Our, actually, our last two have been, I think, the best ones when it regards to that question. Um, and it's, it's
2: about atmosphere. If you're in a restaurant and it's too cold, yeah. it ruins the meal half the time. Yeah. Or the chair's not comfortable. It has to be right. Yeah, yeah. It's an
1: yeah. all-encompassing question, not just about the food. All right, so lastly, what do you, Chef Dan want to be remembered for? Oh, my goodness.
2: Um, I think I touched on this earlier. I think that... Um, You know, I think everything that's out there for the most part that's been new or exciting has been developed for culinary. Not to say that there isn't more out there that's going to be developed, but the big stuff, I think, has already kind of been, like, knocked off, you know. And Mm -hmm. to that point, I think we're circling back with a lot of stuff that has already existed again. So I think that there's pizza, a prime example. How much technology has advanced in pizza? Where the wood-fired ovens are still probably the best ovens, right, or Mm coal-fired ovens. You know, it's simplicity, I think, is kind of like making its reemergence in, in food. Definitely. At least I hope so. Um, but I think that what I'm most proud of to this day and what I'll hopefully be known for is developing people underneath me and giving people a chance to grow and to pursue their their, their dreams, too, through this really wacky and weird industry, you know, finding that, that niche down there. And uh, that's like my little bear cubs out there. You know who you are
1: there's a righteous answer thank you and there you have it that was a true on the fly by a seasoned chef I can go faster and go again it's okay <laughs> <laughs> alright so any uh, shout outs or or mentions maybe you can put your your email or social media out if people want to contact you uh, find yeah. you maybe get a job with you
2: um, my email address is ddoyle167 at gmail.com so it's ddoyle167 at gmail.com And anyone listening, reach out. Happy to talk to you about anything you want to know. Um, I do do some consulting work for restaurants and for people in the industry. I do some uh, other things in consulting with kids or students or uh, people that are thinking about getting this line of work. So I'm happy to do that with you guys as well. Um, If you guys just want to go out and have a beer, that too, reach out to me. Social media, I don't have a whole big presence in that because, unfortunately, the corporate people I work for kind of forbid me from having that out there a yeah, little bit yeah. so i have some personal stuff but uh you guys email me and then let me know what's going on i'm happy to talk to anyone about stuff um you know food safety consulting all the way down to menu development or just uh hanging out
1: cool and if uh if you have any questions or concerns comments you want to be on the show hit us up chefswithoutrestaurants restaurants at com. make sure you like subscribe and review our podcast follow us on at chefs without Join our Facebook group, all that good stuff. Thank you for listening.
0: Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.